It will all come out in the wash. Kind of an unusual expression that we use from time to time. It'll all come out in the wash. And we use it in a variety of ways too. Some people use it as an excuse to continue doing what they know they shouldn't be doing. And to those people, I, I remind you that as human beings, as hard as we work, there's some stains that never come out. Another way that we'll use this as expression is when things, when negative things happen to us accidentally, that expression tends to take the lasting sting out of that unpleasant event. And the final way, and the way we're going to kind of look at it today, is when something is coming, and we see it coming, and we do whatever we can to prevent it, but it still takes place, the knowledge that it will be cleaned up in the end gives incredible hope. It gives us and helps us to be patient as we wait for that end. And it, I believe it inspires courage to try again and to step forward and to continue and to not give up. And we're going to see that in the passage that we're looking at today. We're in this little three-week series called You Had Me at Habakkuk. And he's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. And if you have your Bible or your device, I invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to read it in just a minute. And Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets towards the latter part of the Old Testament. You come to Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. You come to Malachi or Zephaniah, any of those books, you've gone a little far. Habakkuk chapter 2. I want to remind you of the historical setting. It's important. Habakkuk is a prophet to what's called the southern kingdom. There's a political split where 10 tribes of Israel go on their own, and they're called the northern kingdom. And they get conquered because of their sin by the nation of Assyria, which is to the northeast on the map in 722 B.C., The southern kingdom is made up of two tribes, and they continue on, but they keep getting warnings from God. If you continue on this path of willfully disobeying me, of engaging in really horrific things at times, and defying me and going your own way, you will be judged as well. And eventually, Habakkuk is a prophet in and around the time of 605 BC when the Babylonians come and beat up on the southern tribe of Israel and cart many of them off into captivity, including Daniel. Now, normally, when you look at all of these different prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and currently, normally prophets are all about proclaiming the message of God to the people. And so sometimes Habakkuk does this, but the primary emphasis we see in this book is rather him observing what's going on amongst the people and him asking some really difficult, penetrating questions of God saying, why is this going on? Why are you not stepping in? 
In chapter 1, he had these difficult questions he asked God. He said, and that chapter, we said, is really a template that we can use, the pattern he used, to ask the tough questions we need to ask of God because it is really unwise, it is really unhealthy for you emotionally and physically and spiritually to just have these questions bottled up inside you. This is not God's intent. This is not God's desire. He wants to have an honest dialogue with us. And so in chapter 1, we saw this man of God do this, and we, we, we learned the pattern he followed, and I would invite you to implement that in your life. And so God says, rather Habakkuk says to God in chapter 1, I've been observing this pattern for a long time, God, that the people of Israel are en masse, not all of them, but en masse, turning their backs against you. And there is great injustice in the land. And there is there's corruption from the people and from the government. There's wickedness being perpetrated. Innocent people are being killed. There are human sacrifices being made to false gods like the other nations do. There's temple prostitution, all of these things. And we said, this turning their backs on God, we see this in a widespread way in our world. And to a certain extent, at least, we see these kinds of things in Canada and perhaps in our own life. So Habakkuk goes directly to God, not to other people, and he makes his complaint. He asks his questions, and he says, God, how long, you who are holy and righteous, how long are you going to let this carry on? And God, I've been praying about this for a long time. That's the second key element. He doesn't just pray about it once and let it go. He prays about it intensely for a long time. And he, he wants God to remove this. And it could be that in your life, you're praying those kinds of prayers. God says, I'm completely aware of what's going on. I miss nothing. Nothing gets by me. And I have been warning these people for a long, long time from a variety of sources and number of prophets. They've got to stop doing this. And if they don't, I'm going to, because I love them, I'm going to judge them. And I will not allow them to self-destruct without a hard lesson to get their attention. And so he says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to make this lesson clear to them. Well, Habakkuk responds again, and he says, I really don't get it, God. That makes no upset sense to me. This is very upsetting. Why would you use people who are actually more wicked than the Israelites currently are to judge the Israelites? The Israelites are wicked, but the Babylonians are even further down the path than they are. And really what he's doing is he's questioning the fairness of God. And it may be that you've wondered this at times. Is God fair? Just don't leave that hanging out there. Go directly to him and let him interact with you about this. And when he has his say, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, he, he has this image of being on guard, of being poised and saying, now that I've had my say... I will wait and I will hear from God and I will be alert. My head will be on a swivel. I'll be watching for God's answer. 
whatever that answer is going to be. And he adopts this, I would say, an outward and an inward posture of expectancy. Expectancy without an agenda. And we said this is the condition of our heart that God wants so that he can speak into our life. And he's ready to hear God's response. He's ready to wait until his thinking lines up with God's thinking. And chapter 2 is God's response to his second set of questions. Is God fair? And God says to him, you know, you're politely asking me, am I fair? I want you to remember uh, that we taught, and we said this last week, um, don't keep these questions inside us. God never rebukes him for asking these questions. And because Habakkuk does it in a way that is... Um, reverent and appropriate by going directly to God, God grapples with his questions. We can bring our tough questions to God. With all that being said, let's listen to Habakkuk chapter 2. Don't stand, my God. Station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he has to say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed men's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. Stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin until they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. It's your turn. 
Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed men's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation, and he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, Come to life, or to the lifeless stone. Wake up! Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So God has an answer. We don't often like to hear this, but we need to be patient to hear it. And what he's really saying in this chapter is, in the end, it will all come out in the wash. And we come to the key verse of this entire little book of three chapters. In verse 4, we see literally what's called a meta-theme verse of the entire Bible. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. This is something we see all through the Old and through the New Testament and through the current era. People in the Old Testament were saved based exclusively on what Messiah, on what Christ would do for them when he would go to the cross and conquer sin and death and resurrection. And so they looked forward to the day when he would come and would do those things. And by faith, they were saved on that basis. We, in turn, are saved based on what he has done. We look back to the day when he did what he did as we celebrated today in communion, when we recognized his death, burial, and resurrection. They looked forward, we look back. Some people think that the Old Testament era people somehow became right with God by sacrificing animals and by their actions. No one has ever been saved by something like that. No one has ever come into a relationship with God by something like that. Those actions merely point out our need for a Savior, and they foreshadow the day when Christ would come. They never, nor will they ever, save anyone. It's only what we receive by faith as we're reminded in this verse 4, that enabled them, enables us to be saved. So Habakkuk says and these things to him, to God, and God says, listen, Habakkuk, all this stuff is going on, and there is going to be judgment. When these people continue to refuse to repent, there will be judgment. However, As this judgment comes, it's going to have a selective nature to it. It's precise. And for the righteous who will be affected by this to a certain extent as well, understand clearly Habakkuk. It's only temporary and temporal in nature. 
and my grace will overshadow the righteous and it will cause them to live. And friends, this is incredibly good news for our day. Incredibly good news. Because if you are living life right now and you are wrestling with some of the injustices you see all around you that we read about on the news, that we hear and see on the internet or in our own personal life, this is incredibly hope-filled news. Because the reality is, and I believe this is going to increasingly come, unless there's a dramatic shift in the nation, that Canada may well be judged for ongoing sin as a nation, and perhaps in a very dramatic way. I think in some selected ways, it's already started happening. And God is saying to us, listen, you come out of a Judeo-Christian heritage. You can see it etched on our buildings in the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. And I've walked around there many times reading the sayings. We have this in our heritage. And as a nation and as individuals, we are walking away from this. And God is saying, listen, just like he's saying to the Israelites, I think he's saying to us, if you keep ignoring me and you keep ignoring the way of life and the truth that I've laid out for you and choose the path of destruction, I will allow times of affliction to come as a nation to get your attention because I love you and I want what's best for you and I don't want you to self-destruct. And this will happen and is happening, generally speaking. But my promise to my children, the people that are part of my family, is the righteous will live by faith. And that suffering will be temporary and temporal in, nation, in, in nature. My grace, my sustaining grace, will overshadow you and cause you to live. So that means we will share some of the heartache as these things come. But God says, I will walk with you. I will give you great hope through these things. I will give you courage. I will sustain you. I will give you joy. And as always, you have eternal life to look forward to. Don't ever think when and if the judgment comes, I've abandoned you. My grace is here. You know, when I read stuff like this chapter, I read out, I let out like a huge sigh of relief because God is with me to the very end. And the injustices we see around us or that are perpetrated on us, they will be made right one day. And I never have to live life alone. A large part of this chapter, though, talks about the people that are perpetrating these evil things in an unrepentant way, in a way where they see no wrong in what they're doing. So what does God say to them, the Babylonians among us? What does he say? He talks about five different areas, and he paints five pictures of how the wicked will end up if they continue to turn their back on him, despite his repeated offers for mercy and grace. The first one is found in verses 6 to 8. It says in those verses that there are some people living, piling up a life of stolen goods. 
And they use their power in the culture to have financial leverage over people and to abuse the innocent in this way. And we see this a lot. And it could be on a very personal level. You've been ripped off by someone. And they did this because they knew you were an honest person. They knew you were a moral person. They knew you were a righteous person, a person of integrity. And maybe they didn't really understand it, but this all stems out of the fact that you're a follower of Jesus. And because that's the kind of way you approach life, they use that against you. And they ripped you off. And they've used you to get ahead. And because you were honest and fair, you lost out. And these kinds of ideas are not on their radar scope, radar scope at all. And maybe you tried to pursue the matter. Maybe you tried to get justice. And nothing came of it. Very frustrating. God says in those verses, woe to them. Because eventually, maybe in this lifetime, but certainly at the judgment seat of Christ, they will be plundered themselves. If they refuse to repent and make things right and make restitution, they will be plundered themselves. And one day there will be justice, and it will all come out in the wash. There's a second group. In verses 9 to 11, he says, these are people who get ahead and come into positions of authority through unjust gain. And so there you are at work, and you are next in line to get that promotion. And you have studied, and you have worked hard, and on merit, you deserve that position. But someone else has come along and they've used a smear campaign against you of some sort. They've claimed credit for your ideas, your initiative, and your hard work. And you've felt the wingtip of their shoe or their high heels on your back as they've crawled up over you and got the job that you deserved. Or maybe uh, you are just about to make that big sale at work and you had the best price you had a good product to sell, a quarterly product, and yours was the obvious choice amongst all the people that have tendered for that project. But at the last minute, the other guy paid someone a bribe, and so you didn't get the gig. And there's nothing you can do about it because you are an honest, upright person of integrity who follows Jesus. And you've been treated unjustly. I remember when my dad, he's of course retired now, but I remember when my dad was working, uh, this happened to him frequently. He was called on at times to be an expert witness in court. And he would be asked to go and testify as to what a piece of land cost or what a facility was worth. And people would come to him and they would try to bribe him. And they would say, we will give you this amount of money if you'll inflate the, the, the level of what that piece of land is worth or what that building is worth. And of course, as a follower of Jesus, as a person of integrity, my dad's not perfect, but he was always a man of integrity and still is. He wouldn't get the job and someone else would. 
Have you ever had that happen to you? Or things like that. God says, woe to those people who cheat like that. One day they will get their just reward and there will be punishment and judgment if they continue on that path. Now, let me just say before we go any further, the image of this passage and really the image of all of Scripture is that we're not to be sitting there as followers of Jesus, rubbing our hands together, gleefully looking forward to the day when they get theirs. We aren't to be sitting there wanting people to suffer because we got treated poorly. The image of Scripture is always, and the posture of God, is that he longs for people to come to the place of humbleness and repentance and ask for forgiveness of their sin and to make restitution for the wrongs they've made. This is always the posture of God. It says in Scripture, it's not willing that any should perish. And he is merciful over and above anything we could ever imagine. But at the same time, having said all that, the idea that the righteous judge, who is God, whose motives are pure, will right these wrongs and it will all come out in the wash, this gives us hope. This gives us courage. This gives us patience. The third group in verses 12 to 14, are rulers who build their empires with the blood and sweat of others less fortunate than them, especially in this era, and to a certain extent now, this would be around people who are slaves. Now, maybe you have worked at a company where you have worked hard for them, and you've put in the extra hours. You've done the overtime. You have done your very best for them, which as biblical believers, we are always called to do. But there's never any acknowledgement for your effort. In fact, your experience is that the boss finds little ways to shortchange you whenever possible. God says in those verses, the labor of the innocent, which is abused by the powerful, will be seen as fuel for the fire of punishment that the wicked will endure. This is really strong stuff, okay? This is strong stuff. The fourth group in verses 15 to 17 says, what about perverts that get someone drunk and do shameful things to them? Let me just say, if there's ever been a time in your life when someone tricked you, or touched you in an inappropriate manner. Or maybe they put a drug in your drink or took advantage of you when you were small. And even though you tried to resist, you couldn't. Let me say two things to you. I am so, so sorry that happened to you. So sorry. And even though that hasn't happened to me, I've looked in the eyes of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people for whom this has happened. And it broke my heart. So first of all, I say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And secondly, understand very clearly, this was not your fault. 
This was not your fault. And if the evil one tries to whisper lies to you that somehow you were responsible, this is not from God. And for you and in your circumstance, it might seem like nothing has happened to them as a result of this. Maybe they've received some measure of justice from the courts. This passage says that sexual predators, God will expose them. He will disgrace them. He will punish them for those that are unrepentant for their sin, both now and at the judgment. And the terrible things they did in the dark will be exposed and punished. And it will all come out in the wash. The last group, the fifth group, in verses 18 to 20, idol worshipers. And this is very prevalent in our world and in our country of Canada. People in our culture who make primary in their life, who sacrifice whatever to get that place, that thing primary in their life, and in essence worship that, very common. People who worship power, they'll sacrifice basically anything to get power. Or people that will and make first in their life money and resources. And they will sacrifice relationships and their integrity and who knows what to get money. Or sex. Or their own looks. Or their own, they labor under this idea that they can be self-sufficient. Which is so sad. Such a myth. Or celebrities. People that worship celebrities. Or another one that's very common, that worship comfort. And the reality is, is they may get some short-term gain from those kinds of things, but in the end, this passage says what they will be left with is nothing. No answers, depression, and emptiness inside. If that's what you're putting your hope in, if that's what you're prioritizing to exclusion of all else in life, you end up with no answers, depression, and emptiness inside. And when we consider God's answer to all of these things, and it seems like things are going all wrong all around you, what have we learned? It all culminates then in the second key verse of this book, verse 20, where God says this, but, that's a big word right there, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Stop, pause, contemplate these truths. Habakkuk says, Habakkuk, God says, here is the answer for you that you have prayed for at length and waited expectantly and patiently for. Well, all this stuff is going on around you. I give you, almighty God gives you this promise. The God who never lies, the God who never gets distracted or busy somewhere else, the God that always keeps his word, the God of the covenant. And he says this, God remains holy. What does that mean? It means a number of things, but in this context it means he sees and is aware of everything that's going on. He forgets nothing. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing. He knows every thought you have. He knows every motive of a person's heart. He knows every action 
people undertake. He sees it. He knows it all. Secondly, it means nothing has changed about his character. Circumstances are changing and people are playing fast and loose with integrity all around us. But nothing about the character of God has changed. Thirdly, his sustaining grace will be sufficient. It will cover over the righteous who are living by faith. And his sustaining grace protects them and gives them life. Fourthly, he is the eternal God, the uncreated one. And he understands the beginning from the end, even though he has no beginning and he has no end, because he's above all that. And he is most interested in the long-term results rather than the short-term stuff. And finally, and very importantly, God cannot tolerate sin. You hear me say this many times. There's nowhere in the book where he says, that's no big deal. There's nowhere in the book where he says, ah, we'll just let that one slide. There's nowhere in the book where he just sweeps it under the carpet. He cannot tolerate sin. He is holy. And when something has not been owned by the person, has not been repented of, has not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, it will be judged. And this passage reminds us the punishment will be harsh. Not God's desire. It's entirely the person's choice to receive that. And often it comes at least in part here on earth, but for sure at the judgment seat. I remind you, the Lord is in his holy temple. And with this knowledge, let all the earth be silent before him. The worship team is going to join me now. And as they come, I remind you, God makes this promise. It will come out in the wash. And the knowledge that it will be dealt with in the end, I believe, gives us tremendous hope. I believe it helps us to be patient. I believe it inspires courage in us to try again and to continue because the Lord is in his holy temple.